Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. This is the third of 12 interviews with futurists and forward-thinking leaders. We are discussing how they identify trends, bet their sources, and what trends they're following. We are doing this so you and our global audience of leaders can become better visionaries for your organizations and be more prepared for our uncertain future. Today, I am talking with Dr. Berjalan Meshko. Dr. Meshko is the director of the Medical Futurist Institute based in Budapest, Hungary, where he analyzes how science fiction technologies can become reality in medicine and healthcare. In addition to sharing how he finds his sources, Dr. Meshko discusses how science fiction has better helped him understand what future innovations are possible, and he shares what's filling him with a sense of optimism. The 12 Geniuses Futurist Friday episodes are brought to you exclusively by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. Dr. Meshko, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much, Don. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have you back. And just as a reminder, what we want to do is help our audience of business leaders better understand how futurists think and so in order for them to be more visionary for their organizations. And so I'm just going to simply ask you a number of questions. And the first one is, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you would recommend to our listeners that they should pay attention to in order to be better prepared for the future? Well, I read every single day. And I think where I get my inspiration from in my work is basically science fiction. Since I was a kid, I'd be reading science fiction almost every day. And before going to bed, I read science fiction and I spent quite a lot of time from time to time to find out which contemporary artists stand out, and which books I should read. But that's, I know it's not scientific, it's not something technical, but I very much need to spend time in the future. And I know it sounds weird, but this is the best advice I can give to anyone who is thinking about how to think like a futurist. You have to dedicate enough time that you spend thinking about the future, being in the future, even daydreaming would be a method for that. But just reading science fiction is my, I think, simplest, purest way of spending time in the future. Once I read in a science fiction book that when in the near future we would work with robots, the robots would have a distinctive smell because of the mechanical components those machines would have. And we humans, we are very sensitive about what kind of things we can smell and we will have we will associate a specific smell to robot companions working with us so what if that creates a, a sort of a, a distance emotionally between us and robots i've never thought of that before but a book made me do it and now whenever i'm near a robot i, I try to smell it to make sure the idea is you know works in, in real life too but this is what science fiction makes us do. We, we gradually deploy the what-if question into our way of thinking. So that's basically, I read science fiction, plus I read a lot of nonfiction books. Like recently, I finished books like Chatter from Ethan Cross about the inner voice in our head and how to tame it. I, I finished Perfectly Confident from Dr. Moore about how to be better at being confident, not overconfident, not underconfident, just the right amount, right level of confidence. And I finished a range from David Epstein about why generalists 
build triumph in the era of a more and more specialized, very especially it's important in medicine, you know, talking about medical specialties. When you're doing your research, how do you evaluate your sources? How do you know that what you're seeing is actually true? What sort of process do you have for that? When it comes to dynamic resources in, in futuristic studies, especially in, for medical and healthcare purposes, it's extremely hard to find out if a resource is good enough just by looking at it once. Therefore, the reason why I'm so confident about my list of resources now is that I've been looking at most of them for almost 15 years from now. And to do something in a sneaky way, to publish unreliable things in a sneaky way for 15 years is just not worth it for, for authors and uh, you know, website makers and developers. So in medicine, unfortunately, it matters for, for how long you have been creating content and how many citations your website has had on Google Scholar. And when a you know, medical study, a peer-reviewed study, a paper uses your website and cites you in the paper, it's a very good sign that you have been creating a good quality content. Does anything ever come across your desk where you're just like, this can't be true? And then you do a little bit of research and you're like, oh my gosh, it is. Two days ago, I was writing uh, on my LinkedIn profile. I have quite many followers and I, I was writing about the next big challenge in regulations would be regulating adaptive algorithms, those medical technologies that would change over time with every decision those algorithms can make. It's something unprecedented and the, even the Food and Drug Administration in the US has not regulated adaptive algorithms. And then one quite high level contact of mine just replied that, well, it's not true because we have an adaptive algorithm on the market. And then I had to fact check it. And I spent quite a lot of time because I want to make sure I'm, I'm not saying things that are not true. And I, it turns out I was right. And now they are changing their marketing materials because they don't want to, you know, um, uh, stand like somebody or a company that says something that's just simply not true in the technical ways or technical terms that they are using. And I'm very happy to do that, even though it's quite a time consuming part of my job, but this is what I have to do as a practical near-term futurist and being a physician, I can only be a near-term futurist. I want to make sure that we are heading into the right direction. So I, I can just uh, uh, throw around uh, milestones and years that this might happen in 20 years from now, or th that other thing in biotech breakthroughs will take place in 2038. Who cares about that when you have to improve the lives of patients and the jobs of physicians today? But this way I can fact check. You can fact check about the long-term future, but you can very much fact check about what's happening right now. Some of the social trends that I follow pretty closely would be things like addiction and immigration, inequality, things like that. And I wonder if there's a social trend that you're exploring right now and what it is. Well, I'm not sure if you can call it social trend, but the, the metaverse concept is something that will be very much social. I guess the trend is not that, that much social, but the implications will be. And um, I just published a, a paper in a cardiology journal this Monday, literally, so two, two days ago. Uh, is it Tuesday today? Then yesterday. Um, about that, about the, the potential of the metaverse. And the reason why I'm so proud of it is that I'm a geek at heart. I, I really love tech. I live with technology. I have been living with technologies for my entire life. And still, I'm trying to be very cautious, not overhyping, not to overhype a technology. And by the metaverse concept sounds like something really exciting for a tech geek like me. In the practical reality, in the medical or healthcare setting, it has no implications for the near future. 
So it was very hard for me to to write down the uh, to to maybe shatter or break down the hopes and expectations of tech geeks in the area that the metaverse will not have a place in the practice of medicine in delivery of healthcare in the next years or so. And as a tech geek, it's it's hard for me to write these things down. But that's why it's such a social trend. It's a, that's why it's such an such an such an important thing to uh, make a distinction between technological and social trends. And, and that's why we at the Medical Futurist Institute always emphasize that digital health, the, the paradigm shift we are doing research about is a cultural transformation primarily, not a technological one. So while, while everyone is talking about technologies, you know, AI for this or that purpose and virtual reality and health sensors and variables, but at the end of the day, what matters is that the, the doctor-patient hierarchy is transforming into an equal-level relationship. When you think about the metaverse as a social trend, what are the implications of the trend? I would love to have, well, diving into, the, diving into a post-pandemic era, hopefully quite soon, uh, I think we have to, at this point, acknowledge that meeting a physician with even minor health issues will be a luxury when more than 5 million healthcare workers are missing uh, worldwide when more and more patients require medical attention, not because more of us become sick, but because more, more patients get access to healthcare worldwide. The gap between them, between the number of physicians we can train or healthcare workers we can train and the number of patients requiring medical assistance is getting wider. And it would be great to think that the metaverse concept would be like a great, um, so maybe a, a, like a second method, which of course can never be compared to meeting a physician in real life, but it's still better than just uh, having a video chat with a physician through a telemedical service or having a, a Facebook chat or a text message-based communication with them. But in reality, if you have a VR headset at home, I do have one, to put it on, to at least charge it first and then put it on, then start it, then be able to log into the metaverse and be able to talk to a physician or healthcare professional is just so much more complicated then sending a text message or calling someone by phone or having even a video chat through a telemedical service that I just don't see the, the practical implications of that trend for now. I'm curious to know what new technology you're tracking or exploring. Sometimes I come across something that really makes me feel like, well, it just feels like science fiction. And I, I recently tested two of these medical devices. One was a portable ultrasound device with uh, artificial intelligence guidance. I tested portable ultrasound devices before, which you know I could use connected to a smartphone, which is science fiction-like enough. But when it has AI guidance built in, it means I don't even have to be a trained professional. I can just type in that, well, in that, on that patient, I want to examine the liver with the ultrasound device, and it will guide me through the process. And when it's done, it sends the video and the images remotely to be checked by a trained ultrasound professional. And that to me was like a science fiction experience. And the other one, which is, which, is, which I'm testing right now is a vein finder or vein scanner uh, for phlebotomists or nurses who take blood samples often. And there are patients who have like th that kind of skin or maybe the patient is dehydrated. It's hard to find the right vein. And these vein finders work relatively quickly and you can just show them where the veins run and that's it. You don't have to guess. You see what's happening because the device makes you see. So this, this ultrasound, self-guided ultrasound with AI, 
what, what's the cost on something like that? And then present cost and future cost of something like that, because that is really cool. Well, that's, that's still quite expensive. And it's, it, it's not designed in a way to be meant for patients to use at home, to be used at home. It, it's meant for professionals like primary care physicians who want to make patients the point of care even more. So when they visit the patient, they don't have to send every second patient to a clinic or hospital nearby or maybe far away, but they can do some examinations themselves even sending the data to the point of care before the patient would arrive there, that would allow them to make a decision on the go, still far away from those healthcare institutions. So it's very expensive, but the price is not comparable to those, you know, traditional ultrasound devices, which you can see on rolling carts. Those are much more expensive. And these newest, newer ones don't really have, almost have the same features as the, the big uh, other, traditional ultrasound devices. You, you talked about, when we were discussing social trends, you talked about a gap of about 5 million healthcare workers. And that's obviously a challenge globally for healthcare delivery. But do you see some of these new technologies that you're exploring being the bridge between that gap? I see technologies that would improve uh, shortening the gap, such as uh, voice-to-text applications that could allow a physician to keep an eye contact with the patient, having a real-life conversation, while what they are talking about is being written down by an AI algorithm into the medical record system. And at the end, the physician needs to check and confirm everything, but they don't turn to a computer immediately after meeting a patient and you know, starting, start to input data on the keyboard. That, that's something that would improve this, but would not fill in the gap, I'm afraid. The, the method or the, the, the examples I see that could fill in the gap, uh, one, is how the role of physicians from being the key holders to the ivory tower of medicine should transition towards becoming a guide for their patients in the jungle of information. And by becoming their guides, they can help improve patients' health literacy and digital health literacy. And the other example I've seen, uh, I think it came from Australia or New Zealand. I'm not sure about that. And there they trained an army of um, digital health mentors, people, who went to the underdeveloped, underprivileged regions of those countries and tried to help patients living in those regions better understand how they could use the technologies they already have for managing their health or disease. So it's not like we want to give them more technologies when they cannot deal with the technologies they already have. It's let's exploit the potentials that we can find in them using the technologies they already own and let's start from there. So I think... To fill in that gap that was created because of the advance or influx of advanced technologies, I think it's not going to happen by the influx of more technologies, but by us people working in, working for healthcare, better understanding the, the new needs of those empowered patients and the, the new needs of those living in underprivileged regions. One of the things that I enjoy about talking with you is your sense of optimism. And I'm wondering what is filling you with that sense of optimism right now? Uh, well... Two things, three things. I'm a romantic type of person, so I, I believe in hope and that as humanity, we can overcome challenges and obstacles. We are smart and we are getting smarter and hopefully we can communicate well enough in our society to make sure that we build us a future that would make today look like uh, something boring, but the future could look like something out of science fiction. That, that, that's how much hopeful I am about the future. 
The second is that um, I spend a lot of time uh, in the future. I do a lot of forecasts. I'm part of a project called the, the Good Judgment Project. We get a lot of questions and range from geopolitical questions to like how many electric cars China will make in 2022, uh, which team will win the uh, MLB, the baseball season, of course, the Angels this time, hopefully, uh, who might win best director at the next Academy Awards, a huge range of questions from many areas. And the more time you spend forecasting these questions, maybe the better clarification you will have so then you can make your own assumptions as we go. You know, at least the way I was brought up is that was that we should listen to experts and people out there and they will tell us what's going to happen. But I more believe in the sense that I want to find out which visions of the future I want to head towards to. And for that, my proactivity is very much needed. And a third, my, my third reason for being optimistic about the future is that I work with uh, kids. Uh, I've been uh, the head mentor of a, a project called Edison Kids in my country for, for many years. And in that, um, students between the age of six and four, 18 can work with their, their um, teachers and they can come up with scientific projects, even startups. And they have excellent ideas. And why they have doubts about the future because of climate change, because of wars, because of you know healthcare disparities and all that. But they they look for problems to solve and then they can find potential solutions for those problems so fast that uh, I feel bad for thinking back into my childhood years, how slower we were back then. And now they are so fast that I can only imagine how faster the next generation will be if we can foster this optimism, this uh, openness to change well enough. Yeah, oh, that's great. Is there anything else you would want to add in order to help leaders become better visionaries or prepare them for the future? What I don't see happening very often is healthcare leaders or just leaders talking about the what-if question. So it's one thing that you can spend time in the future by watching science fiction or doing forecasts, but I literally come up with the what-if issue or what-if topic many times in my general conversations, even with people who have nothing to do about the future or they have no interest in becoming leaders. But talking about the what if question is fun. It can spark new ideas. It can even make you think about the, the, the tasks and challenges you face in your job. So at my work with my team uh, at home, I, when I play football with my friends, I always come up with something related to the what if question. Dr. Meshko. I love talking with you. You always fill me with that sense of optimism and I learned so much from you. I want to thank you for your time and thank you again for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thank you to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring our Summertime Futurist Friday series. On next week's show, we'll hear from Trond Undheim. Trond is a futurist, podcaster, investor, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and the former director of MIT Startup Exchange. Thank you to Richard, Jonathan, J. Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.